your Bibles, just keep them out because we're going to stay um, right there in Genesis 3. For those of you that may not be familiar with us at the Point Community Church, usually we uh, pick a book of the Bible and we work our way through the book. We start in um, chapter 1, verse 1 of a particular book of the Bible, and then we try to stay there as best we can. We may take a few short breaks and then we'll, we'll end up in the end of the book. We just went through the book of John. We did that. It took us two years. In 2020, we're gonna go through all the books of the Bible. No, we're not really. But that's what our plan is, is to hit what we call the storyline of the Bible. Last Sunday, so uh, you know you didn't miss that much, but last Sunday we started in Genesis chapter one, verse one on page one of our Bibles. And it's our plan to end um, sometime around next Christmas on page, I think, 1042, where we will be in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 21, we're gonna end there. And so Today we're in uh, Genesis chapter three. Now certainly we're gonna move a lot quicker. Like I said, we're not gonna, we're not gonna preach every verse. We're not gonna preach every chapter. We're not even gonna be able to hit every book of the Bible because there's 66 books and we're gonna try to do this in about 49 weeks, something about that. But last week, um, what we saw happening is even we could back up a little bit and say this about the book of Genesis, that as I already said in the, um, in the announcement time, the, the book of Genesis, Genesis just means beginnings. And that's what you have in Genesis is you have the beginnings. And not only do you have the beginnings of creation, but also what you have is you have like a, almost like seeds being planted or seedlings being planted. But throughout the Bible, they're gonna grow up into oaks. They're gonna grow up into full doctrines. You've got almost, uh, if you would, maybe um, I heard one theologian say they're, they're, they're pregnant expressions. And then as we study the Bible, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see those, those expressions being carried out and teased out into full-blown doctrines throughout the remainder of the Bible. And this is what we saw last week in Genesis chapter one. We're in the storyline of the Bible. And last week we were introduced to the protagonist. We were introduced to the main character of the Bible. And the main character of the Bible isn't you and it's not me, it's not humanity. It's certainly not creation. It's certainly not serpent. The main character and the storyline of the Bible is the God of the story. It is God. And we were introduced to God. And what we saw is we have a God who is revealed himself as the supreme creator as he creates. That God creates from an overflow, as a display, as a testimony. Um, he he, he uh, creates. It's uh, from an overflow of his goodness and his greatness and his glory and his beauty that God, it spills out onto the canvas of God's creation. We saw that last week. Last week, we also saw the character number two, that God as the supreme creator, he creates his supreme creation. Supreme creation certainly isn't a cat, not even a dog, not an aardvark, not a giraffe, not any of those things. God's supreme creation that he creates is, is man. He gives him the name Adam. He is man and later comes woe man, Eve, who as we even saw in, to, in today's reading, as Paula read, is the mother of all, of all living things. And humans are unique creations. We're unique creatures. We're made in God's image and likeness. It's the only time God says that about anything that he makes that is made in his image and his likeness. Not even angels are made in God's image and likeness, but yet man is made in God's image and likeness. We reflect God but yet we're made of God. We're not miniature gods. We're from the dust of this earth and to the earth we belong. We have within the Genesis one, we had the setting of the story. The setting is all of God's creation. It's this world, this earth as we see it and as we know it. But in particular, God talked about a specific place 
that he has created and he placed man and woman in that place. It's called the Garden of Eden. And this is what's important to note about the Garden of Eden. Not only is it beautiful, not only is it paradise, but it is a meeting place for God and man. That's what makes it so special. It's not the rivers, it's not the trees, it's not the whatever it is, it's not the perfect climate. Certainly it wasn't eight degrees or 18 degrees in the Garden of Eden. It was probably 83. I mean, isn't that the perfect temperature? It's probably what it was in the Garden of Eden all the time, 83, even maybe 16. Some of you are going like, no, we like the cold. Well, you're sinners. No, I'm joking, you're not. You are, but you're not. That isn't make, make, what make you. But not only is it, that's not what makes it so special. What makes the Garden of Eden so special is the fact that the, the God of creation came and he dwelled with man. He walked with man in the cool of the evening as we even heard read in the story. It's a meeting place. That's the importance. It's a meeting place for God. The Genesis 2 ends with man and woman together in the garden called to turn out in love towards, towards God. They're called to turn out in love towards one another. They're called to turn out in love towards creation as they steward creation, as they harness the earth's resources, they harness Eden's resources for human flourishing. That's what they're called to do. I said this in the introduction of last week and bears mentioning again, you can even write it down, that what we have set up in Genesis 1 and 2 is the pattern for the kingdom of God that God is a king, not only is he a supreme creator, but he is a king and he's creating and he's establishing and he's setting up his kingdom, a kingdom that will reflect him, to know him, to, 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 to be recipients of him. And here's what the pattern of the kingdom is. It's God's people. And you have that at the end of Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve. They're in God's place, that meeting place for God and man. It's the Garden Eden. Under God's rule, there's a law given. We see that in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. I'll mention what that rule is. It was simply this, one law, that law was, and the Lord God commanded the man. That's the rule saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's God's rule, there's a prohibition, there's a command, and then there's judgment and punishment for breaking that rule. Number three, there's also, they are there in the kingdom of God. There is an enjoyment of God's blessing. You have the God's blessing of his creation. You have the blessing of work. You have the blessing of God. You have the blessing of marriage. You have the blessing of, of, of creation. All of those things are there. And Genesis 2 ends with this verse. And the man and his wife, so they're married now. The man and his wife, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. And we say, amen, that there's the absence of this thing called shame. Now keep that in your mind because shame is gonna play a role in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, Genesis 3 opens up and we're introduced to a new character in the story. Genesis 3, 1 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And so the new character is the serpent. Who is this serpent? Well, he's not just any serpent, even though he's not mentioned by name in Genesis 3, but it's one of those seedling, it's one of those pregnant expressions that gets teased out through the rest of the Bible. This serpent is Satan. And Satan by name just means this, the adversary. That's who he is. He's the adversary and it's appropriate name. He is the enemy of everything that is good and everything that is godly. He has set himself up against God 
and against, he hates God and against everything that God loves, he has set himself against those things. Say a couple of things about Satan. We don't have a lot of time to go into great detail, but I do wanna give you just a sketch because again, this is gonna come up through all throughout the storyline of the Bible. First thing we will say about, um, about Satan that we find in, in the third chapter, verse one, is this, that he is created. He is a created being. He is more crafty than, in, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. Now he's not ta- just talking about a serpent and a snake here. But now what he's talking about is he's talking about Satan that he has made. And as a creature that Satan possesses none of the incommunicable attributes of God. And so when you think about the attributes of who God is, God has attributes that he can communicate to his, to his, to his, cre- um, to his creation. To, to us as humans, there are certain um, attributes of God that he can communicate to us. Like even for us, there is within most of us who are healthy, there is a sense of justice. Where does that come from? It comes from God who's a just God. There's a sense of goodness, a sense of rightness within us. We can show mercy and we can show grace. Why? How is that? Well, again, God, that's an, those are all attributes of God. But God, we understand beauty. We understand art. We understand making things. Why? Those are all attributes of God, our creator, the supreme creator that he has communicated to us. But then there are those attributes that are incommunicable, that belong to God and God alone, that God cannot and will not, but he he can't, right? Can God do everything? Well, no, God can't lie. And something else God can't do is he can't create another God. He can't do it because if God created it, then it wouldn't be God. There'd be a time when he didn't exist. And so God cannot create another God. And so God alone carries some of these communicable, uh, incommunicable attributes. And some of those would be this, that we can say about Satan. We have to be careful that we don't ascribe to Satan more power than he actually enjoys. That's why this is important. That even in your own spiritual warfare, even in your own thoughts about Satan, know this about Satan. Number one, that he is not omnipresent. What I mean by that is Satan himself is only capable of being at one place and and at at one time. Now he does have a host of demons and satanic emissaries, but Satan himself is not omnipresent. Chances are you've never seen Satan, felt Satan, touched Satan. And you see what's satanic, but not Satan himself because he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not sovereign. He's under God's power. He's under God's authority. Now he is powerful, but he's not, he's not omnipotent. He's not all powerful. We see this, um, those of you that are reading along in our Bible reading plan, you saw this in Job, Job chapter one and chapter two, that you see that Satan's on a leash, on God's leash. There's nothing that, he can't just go out and do anything that he wants to do, that God is in authority. God is sovereign. God is the one who is all powerful. Now, certainly again, Satan is powerful, but he's not all powerful. Number two, we could say about this about Satan, that although he was originally created good, he is, um, he's fallen. That what we speak about happening in Genesis chapter three is we call that the fall, right? And it is the fall. It's the fall of humanity. It's man falling away from, from God, if you will. It's man falling away from what's good. But as we read scripture, we find out that there's a fall that has already taken place. There's a fall 
among the angelic beings that evidently there's already been sin. There's already been some form of judgment take place before even Genesis chapter one. But Jesus will say of Satan that I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Like Jesus is not speaking about a current event. He's talking about something that has happened in the past that possibly what it appears to be through scripture. And some of these scriptures are very veiled in their meaning and understanding, but what it appears to be that there's been some kind of angelic insurrection against God. Satan led that evidently. It's already taken place and a partial judgment has already happened and they've been kicked out. Now, listen, when we talk about Satan, we're not talking about some dude in a red suit with horns and a pointy tail and a, and a goatee, right? That's not what we're talking about here. Then in fact, like that character of Satan, it came in the, in the middle ages. And it came at a time where within the church that uh, the church was very serious about God, very serious about the Bible, very serious about Satan and spiritual warfare. And they created that character because they understood that Satan's primary sin was pride. And they made that, you're gonna like this, they made that to poke fun at him. They made that in almost a tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic way. They came up with this character of Satan to really, to get at him, to point, to point at him and say, hey, this is who you are. You, you know, they're making fun of Satan and doing that. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that. So when you think about that, that's not what we're thinking about at all. That Paul says is, what Paul says is that Satan comes and he disguises himself. He disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul says. What we have here in the garden is we have a serpent that is Satan in disguise. It's Satan as a manifestation. It's a, a serpent. The serpent is a manifestation of, of Satan. Now, a lot of, I said this last week, sometimes the Bible seems like it provokes as many questions as it answers. I mean, you think Eve would be, when she saw a snake that was talking to her, you think she would know that something was up. I don't know. Did snakes talk back then? I don't know. I don't know, but this much I do know. It's no ordinary snake. And here's what we see in Genesis 3. The, serp, the serpent tempts. He, he lies. He deceives. Man sins. And creation is wrecked. That's what we see in Genesis 3. Now listen, this isn't a story. This isn't a metaphor for life. This is a real event as it's happening. Andy, how do you know that? And why would you say that? Because Jesus believed that. Jesus taught that. The apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the spirit, he believed that, he taught that. So don't think this is just a story that's being told, even though you got a talking snake and all of these things in a, in a paradise situation. It's none of those things. It's not a metaphor. It's real life. And this is what's happening here. We say that the, 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 the job of us to when studying the Bible is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the plain things. And the main thing isn't whether or not snakes can talk or walk or any of those things. The main thing is this, that the serpent Satan tempts, he lies, he deceives, we sin. There's a choice to be made. And oftentimes we choose the wrong things as Adam and Eve do here in the garden and everything gets wrecked. Entropy gets uh, introduced into God's creation, decay of life. And from the sin in Genesis 3, that what we're gonna see for the next 1,112 chapters, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 21, what we're gonna see spilling over onto the pages of scripture is flowing from Genesis 3. Everything that is wrong in this world 
comes from Genesis chapter three. Everything that is wrong in your life, and certainly our life and our world give testimony to this. Everything flows out of Genesis chapter three. All hopelessness, all brokenness, all death, all despair, all sickness, all tears, all thorns, all anxieties, all frustration, all toil. Do you need me to go on? I can't. All emptiness, all loneliness, all pain, all agony, all hatred, all tyranny, all superiority, all racism, all disappointment, all failure, all longing, all turmoil, all greed, all theft all lies, all vengeance, all fear, all suffering, all scars, all calluses, all disorder, all confusion. It all, it all happens because of Genesis chapter three. There is no other chapter in the Bible that resonates with our hearts and our lives like Genesis chapter three. We see it and we feel it day in and day out. And what I want us to see is these four things from So we turn to Genesis chapter three and we break it apart. Four things that I want us to see. Aren't you glad I didn't say 14? I know I am. The first thing is we wanna see the nature of sin. Second, we wanna see the effects of sin. Next, we're gonna see the consequences of sin. And number four, the good news, the cure for sin. All within chapter three. The nature of sin. The nature of sin is this, that the first sin of humanity is not the sin of just disobedience. They didn't just break God's command. In fact, before there was disobedience, there was another sin at stake. Certainly more is at stake than just eating some piece of fruit. That's not what they did. Oh, God said, don't eat this apple. And they ate this apple. That's not what's happening here at all that more than just breaking God's rule or command, the original sin is the sin of of unbelief. The original sin that is committed in Eve is the sin of unbelief. That is the temptation. That is the choice. The choice is very simple. Believe God, trust God, trust his word, or you can doubt God. You can mistrust God and you can take matters into your own hands. That's the choice. And may I say this, in every time that you and I are tempted, we face the same crossroads. That behind every one of our sins, if you think about it and get far enough, the root cause of all of our sin is this sin of unbelief. That every sin that I can think of, you're in the crossroads and a choice is to be made. And either you can believe God and trust him and trust his word, or you can doubt him and you can mistrust him and you can do something else. That what we see in Satan is what satanic is. Satan, he lies. Jesus says he's the father of all lies. That when Satan speaks, lies is his native language. And how does he lie? Well, he lies in this very specific way. He distorts the character of God. He twists the word of God. And lastly, he denies the judgment of God. Starting in verse uh, one, we'll jump down a little bit. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now watch this, neither shall you 
touch it. Now, I know that we didn't read Genesis chapter two, but let me just say that, this. Like, God didn't say that. There's some level of confusion. Now, God spoke those words to Adam and maybe Adam mistranslated them or misrepresented them to Eve, but that's not what God said. He didn't say you can't touch it. You just said you can't eat of it. And so there's already a misunderstanding. I remember when I was in Bible college and they would give us scripture memory verses. And let me tell you, I can't memorize anything to save, to, to save my life, right? If my life depended upon, it. I've tried to memorize scripture. I always, I can get it up here and I can think about it. And sometimes I can write it out, but whenever I go to say it, believe it or not, it just gets all jumbled up. And sometimes we'd have to write them out. Sometimes we'd have to say them and I'd get no credit often because I would do like Eve. I would add things into the midst of the, of the scripture reading. Those of you that were in, Christian Academy, TFCA, you'll remember those days, right? Those of you that are catechizing your kids, like, hey, take it easy, but that precision is important here. And so she's all misrepresenting it, but she gets the important part. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. She understands the consequences for it. Verse number four, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. That's just a ball-faced lie. You shall not surely die. That is a lie. Verse number five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Notice what Satan's trying to get Eve to do. He's trying to get her to doubt the goodness of God. Eve sees that the fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. She's thinking in herself that God is withholding something that is good from me something that would be delightful for me. God's withholding it. That is a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation uh, re of the goodness of God. Next, she tries, to get, she tries to get Eve or the serpent tries to get Eve to mistrust the wisdom of God. She saw that the tree was a desire to make one wise. She's thinking in herself, probably there's wisdom available for me that is apart from the wisdom of God. Ultimately, this leads her to question the love of God. Would a loving God withhold this from us? That's why I said even last week that every sin that we commit is first a betrayal of a father's love. That what Jesus says later on, Jesus will say this, I think in John 14, I believe it is, maybe 15, that if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. What Jesus is teaching us there is the key to obedience isn't just more grit. It isn't just more determination. The key in obedience is more love. And what the Satan is trying to do is trying to erode away that love by misrepresenting God, by trying to get us in a place where we can doubt God's goodness, where we mistrust the wisdom of God, where we question the love of God that leads us to dis disobey the law of God. That what's uncovered here is the nature of sin and the very nature of sin is in this, that there is this unbelief in our hearts. We're doubting, we're mistrusting, we're questioning. There's a, there's a vacuum of trust. We don't trust God. We don't trust his commands. We don't trust his prohibitions. We're not trusting in any of those things. We're trusting something else. And in the, in the vacuum of that trust, then what happens is it gives birth to desire. That's the real problem is there's desire within. In fact, James says this in his um, epistle, James, the first chapter, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person, they are tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. What's the desire in Eve that leads her to sin? She's not believing in God. And so now there's this vacuum in place. And now there's a, there's a desire that comes up within her. And what is that desire? The desire is to be her own God. It's rebellion. It's cosmic treason. That's what's happening here. Again, it's more than just eating some fruit that God said, don't eat. The problem is she has a desire to be her own God. He says he's withholding it, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. She's not being tempted to worship another God, but she's being tempted to be her own God. This isn't just idolatry here. This is deification. You'll be God-like. Satan promises real autonomy, real independence. You can throw off the yoke of God, no longer be subordinate to him, and you will be the ultimate determiner of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil for your life. That's, what's, that's what the, the lure is. You'll be the one to determine right and wrong and good and evil. Now listen, this story intersects with our story. And here's where the story intersects is, let me ask you, where are you believing Satan's lies? Where do you and your life that you're right now, that you're living, that you're responsible for, that you'll be accountable to God to right now in your life, where are you believing satanic lies? Just like Eve, where are you being tempted to believe a lie? Can I tell you where that is? Before you make your list, can I tell you it's here? It's in whatever places that you are not living in complete submission to the authoritative declared will of God in his word. That's where you're believing Satan's lies is if you can point to a place in your life or if I can point or a member of your community group or a dear friend can point to a place in your life where you're not, uh, where you're not submitted and surrendered. You're not living it in submission to the authoritative declared will of God through his word. That God has declared, he has told us how we are to live in our lives. And in those places where you're just allowing things that are uh, incongruent to God's declared word, where you're just allowing them to grow and to fester in your life, those are in the places that you're believing Satan's lies. Those are in the places where you want to be your own God. You wanna throw off God's authority, God's kingship, God's lordship over your life. It's in your arrogant and haughty heart and in your arrogant and haughty attitude that shows up in your, in our sarcasm and our abiding social media posts. God hates the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But you and I, we feel justified in our arrogance. We feel justified in our sarcasm because Walmart hires inept employees, right? Because Walmart has 27 lanes and they only open two, right? At rush hour. Why do they do that? You do that because the world's full of idiots that can't drive. And so somehow you feel justified to be able to say whatever you want to say. You feel justified towards an unloving attitude and actions towards others, even though God calls us to love one another. You feel justified in your selfishness. A little bit of me times turns into a, a lot of time. And so you don't serve others. You don't love others. You don't do for others because you're too busy doing for you. We allow pride in our hearts. 
We allow an unchecked and unbridled temper. No, I'm justified by this. I'm justified because the McDonald's West is so inept. Where do they get these jokers from? And we feel justified to be angry. We allow corrupt and crass words to come from our mouths. Even though scripture tells us, let no corrupt communication come from our mouths, but we just write it off as being funny. We allow lust to fill our eyes and our hearts. We say things like, there's no sin in looking, just doing a little window shopping, just looking at the menu, but I always eat at home. Even though scripture tells us, even Jesus himself says, do not look at a woman with lustful intent. If you do so, you're guilty of adultery. We justify our greed and being stingy or even poor stewardship with our money, even though God calls us to be generous givers. And every one of those places, we're believing a lie from the enemy. And every one of those places, we are doubting God's goodness. We're mistrusting God and his word and his wisdom of his word. And we're ultimately breaking God's commands. We're breaking God's declared authoritative will for you in your life. And ultimately you're saying, I wanna be my own God. And what we ultimately see is an issue of the heart. Now, this is where we are different than Adam and Eve. If you and I, we have a corrupt heart. Now, Adam and Eve, they could have sinned and they could have not have sinned. But you and I under Adam, as we even read from Um, what is it, Romans, the fifth or sixth chapter that we read earlier, that you and I, because of the fall, that you and I have corrupt hearts and we can only sin. We cannot not, not sin. We always sin. The issue, what we see with sin, especially for us, it isn't just about our actions. It's not about our behaviors, but it's about our hearts. That's where these desires are springing from. And in each of those places in our lives, as we think about those places of our lives, and I just gave you a list of my life. It's all I gave you. And every one of those places where we let what we know to be God's word, when we let it go, where we let sin go unchecked, where we let sin go unbridled, where we're not mortifying our flesh in those places. And everywhere, in every single place, there is a, it gives evidence to a heart that is misaligned with the heart of God. So where are you doubting God? Where are you doubting the wisdom of God? Next, what we see is we see the effects of sin. Look at verse number seven. Then their eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Now, why did they do this? Why did they feel naked? It's because they feel shame. Before they were naked and they knew no shame and now they feel shame. And so the first effect of sin is, is shame. It's guilt. A new emotion is introduced into God's creation. As a response to their nakedness, they, they'd been naked before, but in the absence of shame, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And now they are naked And when you and I, when we realize that we're naked and we realize that we're in public, those of us that are healthy, a natural instinct among us is to to do what? It's to to hide your nakedness, to find some cover. Like if you were sleepwalking and all of a sudden you woke up from your sleep and you were in aisle 14 of Walmart, but naked, what are you gonna do? You're gonna find something to cover. You're gonna take cover and you're gonna hide. You're gonna understand that. 
And that's what happens for them. They wake up and they realize that they're naked. And so they, they wanna take cover and they wanna make cover and they wanna hide. So notice they hide from God. They break, that's, that, that's evidence of a breaking fellowship with God. They were naked before and God saw their nakedness and even declared it to be very good. Now all of a sudden they're naked and they wanna hide from God. They wanna hide from the all seeing God who knows everything. Verse number eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, let me just say this. That's an exercise in futility. Trying to hide from God is an exercise in futility. It's kind of like trying to play hide and go seek with a two-year-old, right? Those of you that have kids, you'll remember that. Hey, hide your eyes and they go hide. And then you see this huge mound in the middle of their beds, right? Oh, what's in here? You see something sticking out from the curtains and little feet. Oh, I wonder where she is, right? They just stick their heads under the bed. Their whole bodies are hanging out and you walk in around. Are you in here? It's kind of the same thing. Adam and Eve realized, hey, we've sinned. Where they say, let's go to the trees. Surely the trees will hide us. And they go into the trees for hiding. They think, God, if, you can't see, if we can't see you, then you can't see us, which is a natural response to sin. A natural response to sin is to run and to hide. It's to run from our creator and to run from our God instead of running to him. We run from the only one that has power and the only one who has means to cleanse us and to forgive us. Instead of running to him for cleansing, instead of running to him for forgiveness, what we do is no, we run from him because we're afraid of him. Again, there's a break in fellowship. There's a break in communion with God. Look at what happens next. They begin to blame each other. There's a break in fellowship with one another. Verse number 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? That's God. Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? Now, it's not that God didn't know. He's just allowing them an opportunity for confession even here. And the man said, the woman, <laughs> there's a confession. The woman that you gave me, it's your fault, God. You hadn't stuck me with this woman here on this garden. We wouldn't have all of these problems. That She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I laugh, but this isn't funny. Satan absolutely loves shame and blame. He absolutely loves it. In his arsenal of weapons that he has, he loves to use shame and he loves to use blame. He loves to use shame to say like, you can get no forgiveness. Shame on you for what you've done. Forget about forgiveness. The shame is even different than guilt. We have guilt as a feeling. It's a feeling about what you have done, but the enemy loves shame because he, what he wants to say to you is, no, that's who you are. Oh, that's what you always do. See, that's shame that the enemy uses. And he loves blame. And what we see is blame kind of takes two forms. It, it takes only one form here, but we see it as it's teased out. We see it taking two forms and they're both satanic and they're both evil. And they both uh, um, restrict us from forgiveness. They restrict us from freedom. The blame that we see here, what happens is Adam and Eve sin, right? Even Adam, he sinned. He's taken the fruit from Eve and now he wants to shift the blame. He's the one who has 
who sinned, and he should feel a sense of guilt, right? Those who sin should feel a, a sense of guilt. But what he wants to do is shift the blame to Eve, right? But there's another way that we can do the shame-blame game. Hey, that rhymed. That's pretty good. Those who should feel no shame, those who have been sinned against. Now, Eve hasn't been sinned against, but there are those of you in the room that you have been sinned against. People have done evil things to you, and yet you feel a sense of shame for those things. And that's satanic. What's happening there is the enemy putting the, the weight of shame on your shoulders. He's again, he's shifting the blame to you. Those of you that have been sinned against where now you feel shame. And again, it's very satanic. But what we see here with Adam is he's shifting the blame. He's shifting the guilt. He's shifting it over onto Eve. What comes next is what we see is they hide. They pretend. They build arguments against God. They build arguments against his existence, his character, his nature, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What we also see is they make for themselves, they sew up some fig leaves. They gather up some palm branches and fig leaves and they sew them together and they make an inadequate covering in in an attempt to cover their their shame, in an attempt to, to cover their guilt. They make this inadequate covering and you and I, we do the same thing. You and I, we try to pretend, we try to hide from God. We try to pretend our sin isn't that bad. We try to perform, we try to hide behind our performance. We try to pretend that if we're good enough, if we can do enough good to outweigh the bad, we're constantly reminding ourselves of all the good that we do and all the bad that others do. We perform religious acts and it's all like fig leaves that we've sewn together. What we see here is we see an important part of the storyline of the Bible that in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their hiding from God, God comes to them and he calls out to them. Later on, Jesus will say, I came, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. I came, Jesus said, to seek and to save that which was lost. We have a God who is gracious and a God who is good and a God who loves us and a God who comes and he seeks us out in the same way that he's seeking Adam and Eve out. But we see the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin are this, it's pain. It's pain and it seems as if the woman is bearing the load of pain, but nevertheless, there's pain. The, The picture is that even in the most joyous of occasion, like the celebration of new life, even in the most joyous of occasion of bringing in a child, it's gonna come with pain. There's relational conflict, even in the most beautiful of relationships, the relationship of marriage, the relationship of a family. Now there's relational disharmony. It's gonna be carried out into the following chapters where we're gonna have brother killing brother. There's hatred now. There's toil and there's futility. It's by the sweat of your brow, Adam, you're gonna have to go to work. There's even death. He tells Adam, from the dust you've come and from the dust you will return. That's a picture of being buried in the ground. That's a a picture of our bodies decomposing death. And lastly, the consequence of sin is this, it's exile. They're removed from the meeting place with God. They're kicked out of God's place, signifying a broken relationship and disharmony with our creator, God and King. 
But the most significant observation is this. In our failure, God promises and God provides. Two last things as we come to a close. It's the cure for our sin is found in this. That in our failure, God promises and God provides. The promise comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, verse 15, that he speaks to the serpent. He says to the serpent, to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It's the promise of offspring and an offspring that's going to come. And then notice this, he, now that's singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise is that a human being is going to come that is going to crush the serpent's head, but it's going to come at a cost. It's going to come at a cost at this, at this serpent head crusher's heel. And this is Jesus. This is the cross. That on the cross, Jesus defeats Satan. Paul says he disarms the rulers and the authorities and he puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is Jesus. Jesus is the warrior that's promised here that's going to give a fatal blow to the, to the serpent's head, to Satan's head. We see that happening, taking place in the future, in Revelation even. He promises, and then number two, he provides. It says that God makes a covering to cover man's nakedness. Garments are given to Adam and Eve, garments of protection from the death of an animal. An animal dies, God kills an animal, and from that animal, he covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. He covers their shame. He protects them. That's pointing forward to the sacrificial lamb, which is pointing forward to Jesus himself. Again, the apostle Paul will say that we put on Christ. In baptism, you and I, we put on Christ, that Christ is our perfect covering that covers our shame, covers our nakedness, cleanses us, cleanses our hearts, protects us from the work of the enemy. Genesis chapter three is closed out with this. The meeting place with God is shut down. It's protected even. It says that God appoints cherubim, some kind of angelic beings that are scary looking. Cherubim are standing there. And if, if, if they're not scary enough, they have flaming swords with them. I want you to remember that picture. Adam and Eve are exiled. They're kicked out. They're kicked out of God's presence. They're kicked out of God's place. They're kicked out of, they go live what's called, what he says, east of Eden. It's where they go to live. And then God protects Eden. He protects that place. As we work through the storyline of the Bible, there's gonna be a new meeting place established. So we have a, a, a brick block stone building in the middle of Jerusalem. It's gonna be called a temple. And in the middle of the temple, a new meeting place is gonna be established. It's gonna be called the Holy of Holies, the meeting place of God. It's where God's, God's um, Shekinah glory, a manifestation of the glory of God will come and it will dwell in that part of the temple. Now it's not open to everyone. In fact, guess what? There's this huge curtain that's covering, a huge curtain that is in between the God's presence and God's people. There's a curtain in between there. And guess what God says? So on the front of the curtain, cherubim with flaming swords. It's another picture of God saying, hey, there's a disruption between us, between me and you. 
Not anybody can come in here. In fact, it's just a priest that can come in here. And ultimately, Jesus is the priest who will go in. That same curtain with those same cherubim of flaming with flaming swords, as Jesus dies on the cross after his death, that very curtain will be torn top to bottom. What it's signifying is now we can go in. That through Christ, through Christ's provision, through Christ's protection, those of us who have repented of our, sin, of our sins receive Christ. As Paul says, put Christ on. Those of us who have put Christ on, we can now dwell with God. We can now meet with God. We can now go, know God in his fullness again. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is not for you to dumb down your sin or to say, I never sinned or I shouldn't have sinned. It's not for you to pretend. It's not for you to perform. That robs the gospel of its beauty. What also robs the gospel of, the, of its beauty is for you to say that you can shake a pastor's hand, pray a prayer and go live however you wanna live. That robs the gospel of its beauty as well because in the gospel, what God is doing is he's calling for himself a people. Remember that the kingdom of God is God's people. And who are the people of God? They are those who are clothed in righteousness, those who are clothed in Christ, those of us who love the Lord supremely, who are living for the Lord, who wanna glorify the Lord with all of our lives. Those of us who are not believing Satan's lies, we're not giving in to our sin. We're mortifying the, the, our sin. We're using the, the, uh, the power of the spirit to put to death the sins of the flesh so that we can glorify Christ all the more. Love him supremely. It's God's people and God's place. Right now, there is no place. It's everywhere. It's scattered about. The church is invisible. There's some of you who belong to the church. You're actually in the church. And there's those of you who are outside of the church, the real church, the true church, Christ's church. But we're still under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, the blessing of the church, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of Jesus. But there's coming a day when he's gonna finally establish a new place called heaven. And that's what all of our longing is for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your provision. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our sin that you both promised and you provided, you promised that you, Satan, that his tyranny would come to an end through the cross of Christ. And we're waiting for the finality of that. We're waiting for that to finally take place, Christ, when you come again. And Lord, we are also, we give thanks for your provision, the provision of you as we remember that even this morning as we take, remember you in the Lord's Supper. We give thanks to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.